Heavenly Father, as we are going through the three angels' messages, specifically the first angel, we ask that the same Spirit that inspired that message, the same messenger that gave the angel the message, to be here present with us now to teach us that we may have a true understanding of your word. Father God, this is the only place in Scripture where it mentions the everlasting gospel. And so, Father, there is no way that this is not important to understand. So we're pleading with you. Father, in fact, we're going to claim Jeremiah 33.3, and that says, If you call upon you, I will call upon me. I will show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Father, we are calling upon you. Show us great and mighty things which we do not know. Father God, help me to be able to communicate, bring to mind all that I've studied. And Father, may give, give my, make my thoughts plain so that it's able to, be, able to be digested and understood. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, before we get into it, let's do a review. So let's turn to the book of Revelation chapter 14, where the first angel's message is. Now remember, we're going to be going through the three angel's messages um, and we are still very much in the first angel's message. So in Revelation chapter 14, and we're going to start in verse 6, okay? Revelation chapter 14, for those of us who are here, which I believe would be everyone except for my mother and my wife, um, so for those of us that were here, what is the first angel's message? What is the first angel's message? If you had to summarize the first angel's message, what two words would you use? Good news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That falls under the gospel. The Bible words it, the everlasting what? Gospel. We're in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6. It says, and then I saw another angel flying where? I need, it. I need your response. Flying through the sky, flying in the midst of heaven, having the what? Everlasting gospel, Sylvia, I believe yours says eternal gospel, right? The eternal good news, right? To preach to whom? Every nation. All right, yeah, every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Same thing. Here we go. Verse 7. Saying with a loud voice, right? So he spoke loudly. And what's the first loud words that he spoke? Fear God. And we did this. In part, on the first session we had together, and we kind of reviewed last week and went a bit further, what does it mean to fear God? Who remembers? To hate evil, to hate sin. Uh, there was other verses there in Proverbs which says it's the beginning of wisdom. Other verses say it's the beginning of knowledge. Another verse says that it's the fountain of life to lead you away from the snares of death. Last week, what we also did was look at quite a few passages in the Old Testament, remembering that the book of Revelation is largely quoting the Old Testament. Looking at the Old Testament, what we found is wherever this term, fear God, appeared, what was right next to it? For those of you that were here, who remembers? What was right next to, always connected with fear God? No, it wasn't give glory, but good try. Go to Genesis 20, uh, sorry, Exodus 20.20. Exodus 20, 20. This is still just a review. Now, the wind ships, unfortunately, weren't with us last week, so we're going to review again and look at a couple verses just to catch everyone up to speed. So, we're in Exodus 20, 20. Exodus 20, 20, and what does it say? All right, there we go. So he says, Moses says to the people, do not fear. Now remember, we talked about this verse in the first section. There's these two types of fears. It says, do not fear. Why? For God has come to test you that his fear may be before you. And what? So that you may not sin. We looked at about eight or nine passages last week. I don't know if, Sandy, you haven't written down there how many we looked, especially throughout the book of Deuteronomy. There's a lot of them that have this concept of fearing God with not sinning or, in other words, keeping His commandments. In fact, go to Ecclesiastes. I believe it's the last passage in Ecclesiastes. It's the second last passage. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13. 13, Ecclesiastes, 
is before the Song of Solomon and after the book of Proverbs. Okay, so you got the book of Proverbs, then it's Ecclesiastes, then Song of Solomon's, and then I believe after Song of Solomon's, that's where the prophets begin, which is Isaiah. All right, um, are we there? Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13. Um, it says this, all right? Yeah, look on if you haven't been out front. Brilliant. It says this, verse 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and what? Keep his commandments. This is man's all. What we found last week, yes, fear God, it does mean hate evil, right? It means the beginning of wisdom. That is biblical. The Bible explains itself. The verse plainly says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Now, it, the Bible, though, we're going to take it the next step, right? What is the implication of that? And that is what the Bible teaches, that the fear of the Lord, or to fear God, it means to keep His commandments. Now, if you hate evil, think about it. If you hate evil, are you going to keep His commandments? Yes. If you have wisdom, are you going to keep His commandments? Yes. If you uh, have the fountain of life, which leads you away from the snares of death, okay? What are the snares of death? Sin, Right? If you are in the fountain of life that keeps you from the snares of death, are you going to keep the commandments? Yes, most definitely. So, the fear God is, fear God is to hate evil. It is. Now, there is a reason why it's written that way, but we'll go that one step further and, and, and conclude and connect that fear God in the big picture, I guess you could put, when it's all said and done, it does mean to keep His commandments, okay? Now, we're going to get into connecting it all up later. I'm really tempted to get into it now, but we won't. Um, so, to fear God means to hate evil, or in other words, to do what? Keep His commandments. Now, this is very fascinating, because we're speaking about the everlasting gospel, right? We're talking about the gospel. And... Um, What's quite interesting is, is if you and I are presenting the gospel, the everlasting good news to someone, most probably the way you begin to tell people this good news is not going to be by command to keep the commandments. Yeah? Most probably when you've shared the gospel with people, when I've shared the gospel with people, my first step was not to say, hey, you need to keep the law. Last week, we went on to describe what does it mean to give God glory, yeah? So, to fear God is to keep His commandments, okay? Then what does it mean to give God glory? Who remembers last week's Bible study that we did? What does it mean to give God glory? Exactly, to stay faithful under all circumstances. The other thing, which we didn't get into last week, but I'll just explain right now, the word glory um, is almost always associated in, in, in some degree to God's own character, okay? The term glory is always associated with God's own character, and that's why this, this statement Give God glory is very difficult because the Bible says that when He appears in His glory. So how do I give God something that He possesses? Right? If glory is a part of His character, right? And the Bible says that when He appears, He appears with His glory. Yeah, which is obviously God has glory. God is glory. So how do I give Him something that He is or has, right? And since it is connected to God's character, the way that we give God glory is to resemble His character. And His character, now don't forget this, God's character was not obedience. Okay? Now, did it entail obedience? Most definitely. Jesus' character that He displayed was faithfulness to the very end. There's a difference. Jesus stayed faithful to God even when it felt like God had left him. Right on the cross, Father, why have you what? What did he say? Forsaken me. He felt forsaken. He felt that God had turned his back. There was no reason anymore to stay faithful to God. Yet Jesus 
chose to stay faithful to him no matter what. And on the cross is where Christ entered his glory. On the cross is where Christ glorified the Father. The book of John also talks about, uh, I think, to Peter, speaking of a way that he will glorify the Father by his death. In other words, Peter too will get to the point where he will be faithful to God to the point of death. Okay? So, fear God, it means to keep his commandments. Give him glory, it means to stay faithful to him no matter what the circumstances are. And we talked about this a little bit. Is it easy to be a good Christian when life is good? Yeah, is it easy to love someone who loves you? Yeah, definitely. The Bible says even the wicked love people that love them. That's no evidence of grace. But is it difficult to love someone who treats you badly? Yeah, that's challenge. Is it difficult to speak nice, kind words to someone who's cussing you out? It's very challenging. But it is in those challenging moments where our faithfulness to God is revealed. And it is in those challenging moments where you and I give God glory. And we give Him glory by staying faithful through the tough times. Okay? Now, now, now here's, here's where it gets, it's kind of cool and kind of exciting if you think about it. The gospel, it's like the message of the gospel, the way the Bible's presenting this, is totally flipped to how we usually present it. We present what God has done, and then kind of what does this God deserve, you know? And the, the, the three first angels' message is essentially doing the same thing, but it's flipping it. It starts with the challenge, be obedient, yeah? Follows it up with stay faithful to God no matter what circumstance. And the question is, why? Why should I be obedient? Why should I stay faithful to the point of death? And it gives the answer in the next part of the sentence. Fear God and give glory to Him. Why? For the hour of His judgment, what? Has come. The reason, according to the Bible here, the reason to obey God's commandments, the reason to hate evil, the reason to stay faithful no matter what life throws at you. The reason is because the hour of His judgment has come. Now, let me ask most of you, from the plain reading of just this passage, what does that even mean, the hour of His judgment has come? From the text itself, what can you gather from that? Well, interesting. You said there's going to be a judgment, but from the text, what does it say? If you read it, it says, the hour of his judgment, mine says, has come. Some of yours may say, is come. It's interesting. It's interesting. Yeah, that's very fascinating. I've actually been thinking about that a lot. However, it's, it's fascinating though, right? From this passage, it says that there's a judgment that what? Has come. So, so that's fascinating, and the question is, what does this judgment look like? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what does this even mean? What's being judged? How is the outcome of this judge? What does it even, even look like? The passage doesn't tell us. It doesn't. It just says, obey his law, right? Keep his commandments. Stay faithful to him to the point of death. Why? For the hour of his judgment has come. None of this can make sense unless, or until rather, we look at the Old Testament. Why? Because the New Testament, especially the book of Revelation, is, yeah, the book of Revelation is a majority, a compilation of Old Testament quotes and Old Testament ideas and Old Testament Um, uh, beliefs and Old Testament teachings, yeah? Old Testament uh, parallels. We cannot understand this hour of judgment unless we understand the sanctuary, okay? Because this is a reference to the judgment of the sanctuary. It's a reference to the cleansing of the sanctuary. Um, What in the Bible would be known as the day of judgment, or we would know as the day of atonement, Okay? So today will be kind of an educational rather than insightful, if that makes sense, okay? We're going to be learning the foundation, and then later on we'll put in, next week we'll put in the nice, nice features, okay? So, go to the book of Leviticus. And by the way, 
As Adventists, too often we make a tremendous error by teaching the sanctuary message primarily from the book of Daniel and the book of Hebrews. It makes no sense. In the Old Testament, there's over 50 chapters specifically dealing with the sanctuary and its, and its methods and its ways. In the, New Test, in the New Testament, we have one book that's on the sanctuary. And I'm just saying, you cannot know what it means today until you knew, know what it meant then. Does that make sense? If, if something's used as a parallel, a parable, right? A symbol for what's actually happening literally. You cannot know what's literally taking place without knowing what it symbolically meant. Does that make sense? Too often we spend, the, when we talk about the sanctuary, we spend the vast majority of time in ap- apocalyptic books. When the majority of the content about the sanctuary is actually found in the first five books in the Bible. So we're going there. Book of Leviticus. What book? It's the third book in the Bible, and that is a joyful noise from my new son, Moses. Leviticus. Now, at this point in time, the tabernacle had already been set up and arranged, okay? What did I just say? The sanctuary, the tabernacle, same thing, okay? At this point in time, the sanctuary had already been set up. The tent, the, the different compartments, the different artifacts in there, that's all been set up. And now in the book of Leviticus, which is the third book of the law, this is where God starts telling him how to use this thing. You get what I'm saying? The, the Exodus, the second book of the law, was pretty much telling him how to build this thing, how to make this thing. The third book of the law is very much how to use this thing, Okay. So this, the Exodus very much, how do you build the sanctuary, materials for it, how do you this and that. Leviticus is very much, okay, here's the policies of how you function in this place, okay? Step-by-step guide. So let's look at some of the step-by-step guide. Now, before we get there, um, just a quick question. What was the sanctuary for? We know this, right? No? Okay, yeah, it, it was set up to deal with this problem of sin, okay? So that God can have a dwell to, place to dwell with his people, yes. But primarily, God had this big problem, okay? He loves these people, right? But these people love sin. Now, God cannot appear in the presence of sin because that sin will be disintegrated, right? It'll kill the sin and anything attached to it, okay? So God has this problem. There's a person who he loves and wants to be with, but in that person is sin. And so God set up the sanctuary for a system. How do you separate the sin from the sinner, okay? Because he wants to destroy the sin, but love and be with the sinner. Does that make sense? And that is primarily what this sanctuary is for. It's for separating the sin away from the sinner, do you get what I'm saying? Because unless the separation from sin to sinner takes sin from sinner takes place, God cannot be with them because if it appears in their presence, they will be destroyed. So, say someone sins, how do they get separated from the sin? Okay, that's what we're about to read, Leviticus. Okay, so we're in the book of Leviticus, and let's start in let's say. Chapter 4. Okay? Chapter 4. This is dealing with sin offerings, okay? So it says, are you there? Leviticus chapter 4? All right. It says, now the Lord spoke to who? Lord spoke to who? Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, if a person sins how? unintentionally against any of the commandments of the law in anything which ought to be done and does any of them. All right, so speak to these people. Um, then, if the anointed priest sins, so who's, who's, who's this dealing with now? If the anointed priest sins, what is this anointed priest to do? 
If the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on how many of the people? On the entire community, or on the people here, right? Um, where am I? If, uh, oh, sorry, I jumped chapters real quick with my eyes. Okay. If the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord for his sin, which he has sinned, a young bull without blemish as a sin offering. Okay? So he's saying if the priest sins, he needs to offer a bull. Okay? A bull with no blemish. Um, he shall bring the bull to the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, lay his hands on the bull's head, and kill the bull before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood. Okay? So he's got this little cup kind of thing, and he takes some of the bull's blood. Um, yep, uh, bull's blood, and bring it into the tabernacle of meeting, okay? Verse 6, the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall pour the remaining blood of the bull at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. He shall take from it all the fat of the bull and sin offering. Right? So he had to take all the fat of the animal. Now, I know this is kind of dry, but we're going to get through it, okay? He shall take from it all the fat of the bull as a sin offering, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat which is on the entrails, the two kidneys and the fat that is on them, by the flanks and the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys, he shall remove. As it was taken, for, uh, pardon, as it was taken from the bull of sacrifice, of the peace offering, and the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. But the bull's hide and all its flesh with its head, legs, and entrails, and offal, or dung. The whole bull shall be carried outside of the camp to a clean place where the ashes are poured out and burnt on wood and fire, where the ashes were poured out. Now, if the whole congregation of... Oh, sorry, uh, uh, shall be burnt. Now, this is quite a process for one man's sin, yeah? So, if you're the priest, okay... You had to get a bull, yeah, that was without spot or wrinkle or blemish, okay? You had to bring it to the altar of sacrifice, place your hands on it. Now, I'm just saying, a bull, they're not really easy, they're not like a little lamb to, to guide and to put in place anywhere, yeah? So you had to take this bull, wrestle his way up there, put his hands on his head. He had to kill the bull, Okay? Then he collected some of the blood in, in, in a little vessel, right? And then that blood he took inside the tabernacle of meeting, or in other words, what we would refer to as the holy place, okay? Then he would get his finger in that vessel, which is full of blood, and he would seven times sprinkle blood where? On the veil, right? On the veil. What's behind the veil for those of us who know? The most holy place, that's where the presence of God, the Shekinah glory was, okay? How many times did he have to sprinkle it onto the veil? Seven times. Then he would take blood and he would put it on the four corners of the altar of incense, okay? Then he obviously still has some blood in the vessel. He brings it back and then he pours out the rest of the blood at the foot of the altar of sacrifice. Then he has to get a knife, okay? And then he has to carve away all the fat from the animal. He has to carve away the fat from the intestinal linings. He has to cut him, carve the fat away that's above the kidneys and above the liver. He has to, any fatty lobes, get rid of him. This is a messy process, yes or no? Then he has to burn this fat and melt it away. Yeah? Then with the rest of this animal, he had to take it to the place around the camp, which is designated as the ash hill, and burn the rest of the animal there until it becomes ash as well. In doing this, the sin that this man committed, okay? Now, remember, this man represented all of the nation, 
Okay? The difference between a prophet and a priest, the prophet spoke to the people on behalf of God. The priest spoke to God on behalf of all the people, right? So this man represented all the people. Now, once the priest did all this, he was freed from the sin, yeah? Now, my question is, where is his sin? Well, okay, brilliant point. I'm glad you brought that up. Is it on him? No, right? Because this whole process separates the sin from the sinner, right? So he's no longer a sinner, but he's perfect in the eyes of God, and he can go back serving in his duties. The question is, where is his sin? Okay, so it started off being transferred to the bull, yeah? Put his hands on the bull, so where did his sin go? To the bull. Then the bull died, yeah? Now, that paid the penalty of death for his sin, right? Now, once he died, where did his sin go? Into the blood, which went into the vessel, right? Then what did he do? He walked where? Into the holy place, right? And where did he sprinkle the blood? On the veil, okay? Then some on the altars, then he poured the rest out at the base of the tabernacle, uh, the altar of sacrifice, then he melted away the animal. His sin, right, transferred from him to the animal, from the animal back to the priest, okay? Now remember, when he cut it, he wasn't cutting it as a priest, he was cutting it as Aaron, okay? When he receives it from the animal again, he receives it as priest. Now, don't miss this. Once Aaron puts his hands on the animal, where did the sin go? What does Aaron have? No sin, okay? So from placing his hands on the animal, sin, he's free, okay? The animal, though, does have to die. Then, again, as priest, now, not as sinner, as priest, he collects the blood. And where's the sin at the moment? In the blood. Then the sin gets transferred where? To the vessel. The horns, and then at the foot, right? Dumped at the foot of this altar of sacrifice. That's for the priest. Now let's keep reading. Verse 13. Now, if the whole congregation of Israel sins how? Unintentionally. Um, And the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done something against any of my commandments, or any of the commandments of the Lord, in any which should not be done, and are guilty. So in other words, if they've broken my commandments, whether they know it or not, they're guilty. Okay? Now, verse 14, this is very fascinating. We're going to stop here just for a little bit. Verse 14, what does it say? And when their sins which are committed become known. Sylvia, can you please read your translation? That is accurately translated. This is old English terminology. We don't speak that way anymore. When their sin, can you read it once more? When they become aware of their sin, then they are to do something. Now, now, we're just going to stop you for a split second. When does God expect you to confess and do what you need to do to ask for forgiveness? When do you need to do something to get rid of your sin? When you become aware of it. See, the question I get asked a lot, what if I sin and don't know? Right? What if I sin and don't know? Now, now don't miss this. The verse before, God says, hey, whether you know it or not, you're guilty of that sin. Right? But then he says, but when you become aware of it, do this. So whether you're guilty of it, right? And, and as a 
Christian, if you go to court, the only plea you ought to have is, I'm guilty, yeah? But it's interesting that God does not expect you to act on it until you're aware of it. Now, it's the Holy Spirit's job to make you aware of your sin, yeah? So even on that, God takes responsibility. Follow God does not expect you to do anything till He Himself has made you aware of it. You follow that? People are like, but what if I'm sinning and I don't know I am? Well, God doesn't expect you to do anything. But when He reveals it to you, you make sure you do what you're meant to do. Do you get what I'm saying? God takes responsibility for making you aware of your own sins. Does that make sense? Yes or no? So we're not to worry about those things. What should we worry about? The things that God has revealed. You know, so many times we wrestle and ponder and and, and debate about the things that we do not know. And in doing that, we neglect fixing the things that He has made known. You get that? So whatever God makes known, that's what we act upon. Now let's keep reading. When the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a young bull for the sin and bring it before the tabernacle of meaning. The elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord. Then the bull shall be killed before the Lord. The anointed priest shall bring some of the bull's blood into the tabernacle of meeting. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in the front of the veil. And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar, which is before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall pour the remaining blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting." Then once again, he should take all the fat from it and the burnt offering, and he should do with the bull as he did with the bull of the sin offering. Thus he shall do with it. So the priest shall make an atonement for them, and it shall be forgiven them. So essentially they go through the same principle, whereas, now remember, this is speaking about the nation. If the nation rebels, if the nation sins against God, what's meant to happen? They get a young bull again, right? Yeah? And who lays their hands on the bull? The elders, the leaders of this community. They're the ones that take, uh, God holds responsible. Yeah? Don't miss that. The leaders is what God holds responsible for the rebellion of the entire people. Not every individual had to go and repent. The leaders had to. Don't miss that. The elders put their hands on the bull. Where did the sins of the people, when the, the sins of the people, who are they upon? The elders. When the elders laid their hand on the bull, where did the sin go? The bull. Then what do the elders have to do? Kill it and the animal bled. Who caught the, the blood? The priest. Where's the sin? In the blood. Where did the priest go? Into the tabernacle of meeting or the holy place, right? And before the veil, what did he do? Sprinkle the blood. In other words, transfer the blood where? To the holy place. Then also on the horns. And then they dip the rest and then did whatever they had to do to get, discard the animal, okay? We can keep going. And I encourage you, read the book of Leviticus, okay? Read the book of Leviticus. Um, it's, it's very important, especially up to first 16 chapters, because this is specifically how they dealt with it. Now, what was interesting to me, not every sin ended up getting sprinkled on the veil. Okay? Not every sin did he take into the holy place and sprinkle in the veil? Some sins, right? Ones which we would categorize not as full on. Okay? Um, let me see if I can find it for you here. Uh, can't find it now. But some, they had to go and get sprinkled on the veils. Other ones, the blood, right? The blood, once it was taken, was sprinkled on the horns of the altar. And that's where it ended and it got poured out. Then others, it was horns on the altar and then in and sprinkled on the veil. And then the, whole, and then the altar of incense. So you have these different artifacts being sprinkled for different types of sins. Now, he, but... In every single case, this is what's important not to miss. In every single case, okay, the sin 
the sinner left without sin. Yeah? You follow that? The sinner left free. From what point was the sinner free? From when he laid his hands. Okay? The sinner was free from when he laid his hands. Now, the animal did have to get killed by the sinner. Right? Now, is that the sinner's fault? Most definitely. But the reason it was is because the animals are now sinful because it took on the sins. But it didn't stop at the animal. That's what's important to understand. It didn't stop. This transfer system did not stop at the animal. The animal was just a, a stepping stone, right, to where its final destination would be for the rest of the year, right? And its final destination, the priest took it in a vase, and where did he transfer it to? The sanctuary. The tabernacle, right? The people sinned. Aaron, when he sinned, where did his sin end up? In the sanctuary. When the nation as a whole sinned, when did their sins end up? In the sanctuary. When individuals sinned, where did their sins end up? The sanctuary. The final destination for their sins was the sanctuary. Now, this would happen all year. Okay, you're following this. I've got five minutes to wrap this up. That's why I said this is just like building blocks, information going to be used to be able to apply what we're learning in Revelation 14. Throughout the whole year, every individual that sins, yeah, every leader that sins, every, when the nation rebels, okay, where are all their sins being built up? The sanctuary. Now, now remember, not on them. In front of God's eyes, are they free and innocent? Yes or no? In God's eyes, they are free and innocent. From the point of laying their hands, in God's eyes, they are free and innocent. But God still needs to handle the sin. Right? He's been able to separate the sin from the sinner. So you've got these two things. In this, the, the sinner is no more a sinner but a saint and he goes off free. But there's still the sin and God hates sin. It has to deal with sin, right? And so he stores in the sanctuary for a year. This would happen every year. This is how it functioned. Then one day, okay? One day of the year. On the 10th day of a full month, there would be something called the Day of Atonement. There would be called, or the Bible sometimes refers to, it, refers to it as the Day of Judgment. In the Talmud, it's referred to as the Day. Now, you know that there is a special day when you can just refer to something as it's the Day. You know what I mean? Also, it's interesting, in the Talmud, it refers to it as the Sabbath of Sabbaths. The Bible actually also refers to it as a very special Sabbath. Now, once a year, there was this, the day, the judgment, the atonement, the cleansing or the cleaning of the sanctuary. Now, follow that. For 359 days of the year, what's been happening? Sanctuaries are getting filthy and filthy and filthy. And I was actually teaching this to my students at school. It was really cool. And we went through the artifacts first and then went through this. And one girl goes, oh, you know, we're sprinkling all that blood on the veil. That would get stinky. Is that why there's an incense thing right there? And I was like, man, I've only ever looked at the incense as a spiritual application. I've never looked at it in its actual functions like it's practical application, <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, man, kids, they're great. But like, it's true, like this thing would get dirty and smelly, would it not? Sin is filthy, sin is smelly, and sin was stored there. Every sin was no longer on the people, they're free, praise Jesus for that, right? But it was stored there. Then, on this one day, okay, this was D-Day, this was the day, the sanctuary would be cleansed. The sanctuary would be cleansed. And I really wanted to get through, to, through this today, but we're not going to have the time to. Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus, the whole chapter 16, specifically tells you what the priest did on behalf of the people for the cleansing and for the purifying, the atoning of God's people.
Now, here's the point. We can get into it. I might get into it next week. Depends. But essentially, the priest had to have certain animals to perform certain rites with them. And when the day was done, at the end of the day, there was a goat that went out into the wilderness and that goat bore all the sins of all the people and it died out there in the wilderness. Okay? Now, don't miss this, all right? This is the whole point. We can get into details, caught up in the details, or, and, and miss the point. So what we're going to do is focus on the point and maybe miss some details, okay? This whole day of judgment, this hour of judgment, okay, has to do with eradicating sin. You get that? This day of atonement has to do with cleaning out Old song came into my head right now. <laughs> Cleaning out the filth from our past, okay? This, now, now remember, is the filth in you? No. It's in the sanctuary. It's in a place, okay? The place that God designated. And it's been building up over the year. And this year, there was atonement going to be made for everyone's sin from all time, okay? Specifically in the past, it was from that year. And at the end of the Day of Atonement, God was at one with His people. There was no sin between them. Sin had been dealt with. You get what I'm saying? There was no sin in the camp. And then the ceremony had a beginning for the next year. This Day of Atonement, this cleansing the sanctuary, this... The day is what the Bible is referring to in Revelation chapter 14 as the hour of judgment, okay? Because that is sanctuary language, this hour of judgment, this period of judgment, but not just any judgment, this period of eradicating sin. Now remember, it doesn't say eradicating the sinner. Because ideally, we're talking ideally how it should have been every year, okay? Ideally, every one of us, we would have confessed every sin, okay? And we would be outside of the tent, we'd be praying and fasting, okay? We'd be sitting in sackcloth and ashes. This is what you did. Would you and I have sin, yes or no? No, so would God be dealing with us? No, what would God be dealing with? With the problem. Do you get what I'm saying? Now, this whole system the sanctuary, is set up to remove sin from you and ultimately to remove sin completely. Do you get what I'm saying? Removing sin from you was just the first step in eradicating sin as a whole. Okay? So, we're going to have to wrap it up here just because the time is dictating that. However, let's get back to Revelation chapter 14. This stuff's actually quite interesting when you get into it. It's actually quite insightful, you know. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 7. Saying with a loud voice, fear God, or in other words, hate sin, or in other words, or keep His commandments. Right? They're on the same balloon. Give Him glory, or in other words, stay Faithful under all circumstances. Why? For the hour of his judgment has come. Or in other words, because that, because God is has yeah has removed sin from you, and is eradicating sin. Now, now think about that. Removing sin from you and then getting rid of sin. What is that? Cleansing, yes. That's salvation, yeah? Yeah? Yes or no? Is it salvation? The whole sanctuary is salvation. You know what I mean? Removing it from you, that's your salvation. Then eradicating sin as a whole, that's salvation of the world. Yeah? That's ultimate salvation. So, the gospel, first half of it, and we'll, like I said last week, on this hour of judgment, we're going to spend probably another two weeks on it. Today, like I said, was just 
info, gathering info. Next week, we're going to connect some dots. And in the third week, we're going to look at why this should actually be a joyful occasion. Okay? Then, but so far, the first half, keep God's commandments, yeah? Stay faithful to me no matter what. Why? Because I've separated sin from you. In other words, because I have saved you. You follow that? The Bible's gospel is an appeal for you to be faithful to God. It's an appeal for you to be obedient to God because He has saved you. The gospel is a life-changing, not just history-eradicating message. Do you hear what I'm saying? I'm just going to use this illustration. It's going to be crude, so bear with me. The fact of the matter is that there are a lot of men in this world that struggle with pornography addiction. Okay? They struggle with pornography addiction. And so they're on their YouTube, or they, not YouTube, but websites, right? And they're on Google, and they search their terms, and then they go into these other porn websites, and they're sitting there, and they're indulging in their sin. Okay? When they're done... They feel guilty, especially if they're Christian. They feel guilty. They know they shouldn't. And so what they do, they go into the history and delete the history, okay? But the fact is that next week, the next day, the next month, whatever, when they're sitting there again, the desire is to go back and watch it, okay? And then they watch it, and then they finally get convicted, and they feel guilty, and so, oh, and they delete their history. Forgiveness is not God deleting your history, You get what I'm saying? That's a part of it. But the gospel is not just deleting your history. Rather, it's changing that man so that the next time he sits on that computer, he doesn't watch it. Do you know what I mean? Is the history deleted? Yeah, definitely. But it's also changing that man. The gospel, is it deleting the history? Yes, but it's also empowering you for the future. It's the two things that are the same. You know, we try to separate the gospel. We try to say there's justification and then here's sanctification. But the fact is they are the same thing. They are the same thing. The gospel justifies and sanctifies. The sanctuary justified and sanctified. And then ultimately will glorify And one evidence that the gospel is a life-changing... I'll wrap it up on this. I have to just share this thought, right? One evidence that the gospel is a life-changing thing and not just a history-eradicating thing. It starts off by saying, fear God. It doesn't say, keep His commandments. It says, fear God. It starts off by saying, give Him glory. It doesn't say, stay, stay on my side no matter what. Now, now, the reason for that, think about that. The true definition, biblical definition of fearing God, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Now, we talked about this. This is something that you and I don't naturally do. Yes or no? If you feel tempted ever, then you love sin. <laughs> you don't hate evil. Yeah? But the Bible starts off with hate evil. The Bible starts off with give God glory, okay? Now, do they equate in hating evil and keeping His commandments? Most definitely. But it's keeping the commandments because of who you are, right? Now, think about it. For me personally, I've always hated smoking, okay? Never in my life have I smoked, not because I believed smoking was bad, it's because I hated it, it stunk I had a bad taste in my mouth about it from my dad's experiences and his testimonies. My grandpa died from it. I hated it, right? Who you hate, now think about this, who and what you hate reveals who you are as a person. Yes or no? Does God hate? Yes or no? Yes, he does. But what does he hate? He hates evil. He hates sin. He hates injustice. What does that tell us about God? It tells us who He is. 
Do you hear what I'm saying? If you hate evil, that is not an intellectual decision that you've made and you will bear it no matter what. I will keep those 10 rules. I hate those 10 rules, but I'm going to keep them. No, if you hate evil, it's about who you are. Do you get what I mean? It's your desires have changed. Your convictions are fresh. Who you are as a person is new. Giving God glory. It's not about, I'm going to be faithful to him. You know what I mean? It's not gritting your teeth and that's it. I'm not budging. Why? Because I'm told not to budge. No, giving God glory is being faithful to God the way Jesus was. And how was Jesus able to be faithful to God to the point of death? Because that's, that is who he was. And Lamar has this amazing quote. I love it. She says, Persecution does not create martyrs. It reveals who martyrs are. Do you see the difference? A martyr is someone long before they're killed. They're at a place in their mind that I, I am who I am and I'm faithful to God no matter what. Death, okay. They're not gritting their teeth and staring by and becoming martyrs by the sword. No, they are martyrs and the sword just revealed who they are. Do you get what I'm saying? The gospel starts off with these terms of a different being. The gospel changes who you are and will be as well as eradicating who you were. Does that make sense? And I think everyone in this room, to a certain extent, has experienced that. You aren't who you were 10 years ago. And you're not who you want to be. <laughs> but, but this gospel, this message of the Bible, it has changed you. It has eradicated your past. And there's still things to be changed, and that's why we still experience this process of the gospel. But the fact is that the gospel message... Okay, the gospel message is not just one that erases your history, but it also will, by God's grace, recreate who you are. That's why we have the term born again. Let's have a word of prayer. And I know I went rambling a bit there in the end, but hopefully it makes sense. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for being with us. And Lord, we just ask you now to be actively engaging in our life. Help us to actively be responding to you. And Father God, help us to fear you, help us to give you glory because of your judgment. Father God, help us to keep your commandments. Help us to stay faithful to you no matter what because you have separated sin from us because your judgment is taking place. The cleaning of the sanctuary is taking place. Father God, as we go on through this series, may this picture become clearer. Father, my inabilities to communicate properly, I ask that you make up for them now. And Father, we thank you for visiting us. Forgive us our sins, and in doing so, change us for tomorrow. In Jesus' name, amen.